0: Well, good morning and greetings to you all. If you would please, please open your Bibles uh, up to the Book of Micah, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to revisit this passage which uh, we first considered several weeks ago. Now, uh, that is Chapter Four, verses one through five. And if you recall this. Chapter Four here, while it isn't the beginning of a new section, uh, it does mark for us um, a transition within the book for if you've if you've noticed the language the discourse up to this point has been very heavy, it's been very weighty, um, very condemnatory, and now there's there's a definite otherness to some of this language there's a shift more towards. Towards the positive, towards um, excitement towards joy, towards um, restoration, something positive to which Micah 's hearers can tune their ears and and this portion of Micah 's prophecy uh, as as we noted, and as we shall see again, it deals with the last days here or or the future. it deals with this chief of the mountains, or that kingdom which is above all kingdoms. And it deals with this um, this time in which, as it's described here, as, as an unprecedented time of peace, a time when nations shall not lift up sword against nation. And if you would, I would re- ask you to re- recall, think back to the period in which, this was written, that period that's described for us in Second Kings, chapters sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. That type of era, and and it was in this where where Micah was as a sorts he was witnessing the last days of his nation. Um, you know Israel, which had once been. Uh, United. It had once been the dominant world power under Solomon. Well, now she's been divided up. She's been split into the, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. And Assyria has came in and taken out the ten northern tribes. They've already been parceled out to Assyria. Uh, and Judah now is, is in turn facing the wrath, the sword of, of the king of Assyria, of, of Sennacherib. And so these these words that are written here by Micah, they're not just pie in the sky verbiage. They're not just eloquence of a godly preacher. No, what we have here in these words, if you if you read it and, and you're really considering the time in which these are written, the context, the the feelings of of these men and women of the nation, there is an almost tangible emotion that's attached to them it's you can reach out and grab it and that was very intentional very purposeful by god himself because god saw fit at this time for his chosen nation to 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 receive a word of hope in the midst of horror to receive a, a message of glory in the midst of gloom and of Peace in the midst of persecution. For this section, like I said last time, it's almost word for word in Isaiah. The same thing. And similar things are written in other prophets in the Old Testament in this time period. This is a very specific word that God had for His people that was that was facing a very dire situation, a very serious situation situation so let's read now again this text and I want to begin from chapter 3 verse 9 and we're going to read through 4 verse 5 now hear this heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us about His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Well, as we noticed last time and again now, this word from heaven here is regarding the last days. It's the last days as opposed to the end days or, or the, the first days as opposed to the end. The, the, the end of time versus in the beginning of time. And this simple phrase right here, the last days, it tells us that, that what follows or at least a portion of it is something that will occur within history. It's in the last days, it's not after the last days. And history is that period of time which revolves around Jesus Christ. History is the account of and is marked by his act of creation. You know, by him all things were made. It is marked by his incarnate entrance into creation. And it is marked by his return to his creation. As we noticed before, um, it is this this central act here, this incarnation, this Jesus Christ coming to this to this earth, his physical creation, that marks the dividing line between the former and the latter. The in the beginning days and in the latter days. This first coming of Jesus Christ is that which inaugurates these last days. And his second coming is that which closes the door. It's, it's the closing of the door of history. That which, which ends the last days but opens the door to eternity. So there's there's a closing and a simultaneous opening of sorts here that's going on. He's he's returning and he's closing a door, but he's opening yet another one. Well, in the Greek, this period of time, uh, the last days, is known as eschatos. And that's a fairly familiar word to the majority of us because it's from this word that we get the word eschatology, the study of the end times, the study of the end times. So here in Micah 4 we are confronted with an interpretive challenge here. What is our hermeneutic? There is a hermeneutical question here. What is our eschatology? What do we believe about the end times? How is this fulfilled? Is it fulfilled? How should we understand this? This in the last days? Well, in seeking to answer these questions for myself... Quite frustratingly, I received little to no help from some of my contemporary sources. MacArthur, Sproul, Alistair Begg, John Piper. These guys offered little to nothing for me, unfortunately. Um, Micah was only briefly touched, and chapter 4 was pretty well altogether avoided. Um, The three or four different study Bibles that I have... Not a whole lot of insight there, and the multiple commentaries just a little bit of guidance so um, it was challenging, and if you want to muddy the waters even further, all three main eschatological viewpoints appeal to this verse or these section of verses so it was it was difficult because if you look at this from a post millennial type of perspective they would argue that the church um, the the kingdom via the preaching of the gospel is what brings about this period of peace here. Uh, the gospel ha- has gone forth into all the world um, to, all, to all the nations and and via the actions via the work via the faithfulness and the the accurate preaching and teaching of the scriptures. Well, the fulfilling of the Great Commission, now peace occurs and is established through the earth, and then Christ returns. The, the premillennialist would, would look at this and say, no, no, the kingdom of Christ is, is fully realized in physical reality on the earth by the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his physical kingdom centered in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But the all-millennials look at this and say, no, this this mountain of the house of the Lord, this chief of the mountains, this kingdom of Christ is is the church. And there is no literal millennium. It is simply figurative language. It's language which helps us to, to understand it a little bit. And it's used uh, in this kind of basic, simplistic breakdown of the three viewpoints. So if, if I have, please forgive me. But these are the basic thought processes here. These are the basic premises uh, of the viewpoint there in eschatological doctrine. But the question still remains, though, for us, how ought we to understand this portion of God's Word? How ought we understand it? For if, you are, if you're honestly seeking and you're truly studying and trying to, to grasp a hold of truth here, come to a firm conviction on this issue... Then you've honestly got to grapple with this portion in Micah. And not just Micah alone, because you've got to take it in conjunction with the other myriad of passages that deal with the last days. I mean, there's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. I mean, where are you going to stop? Matthew, Mark, Luke, Revelation, Thessalonians? You're going to talk, I mean, the end is declared from the beginning, so you've got to go back to Genesis. I heard somewhere recently that that I think 20% of Scripture is prophetic in nature. One fifth. Of that fifth, a third deals with the last days. So there is an, an extremely large amount that God has to say about these last days. And it is not very easy to piece it all together, frankly, it's very challenging. It's very challenging, and I want you just to pause with me for a second and feel some of this tension that I felt here. Feel some of the difficulty here, because uh, maybe you don't see any difficulty here, but, but I certainly did, and I've looked at this probably for four months, and it's been, it's been, I'm still wrestling with some of these questions, and sometimes I felt like Daniel, who he said he was, he was greatly alarmed and his face turned pale. Yeah, that's, that's how I felt here. Well, first there's a question of, well, when do these last days occur? When, when in this particular set of last days? When within the last days? Um, what is it that I exactly believe about the end times um, and Christ's return? You know, we're confronted with this, this mountain language that we've talked about a little bit. What does that mean? Is it figurative? Is it literal? Does it refer to, to Israel? Is it, is it a literal topographical change with, with um, earthquakes, with, with changes in the geography? Is, is that some of here? Is, is if, if it's figurative, to what is it pointing? Is it pointing towards um, the church? Is it pointing towards uh, the kingdom of Christ somehow? If, if we answer, well, it's the kingdom then how does that interact with the church or vice versa? And, and are, there, are these two synonymous, the church and the kingdom? Or are they parallel or overlapping? Or, or, or what's their relationship here? Um, how does the Old Testament look at the kingdom? What do the New Testament authors have to say about the church? What does Jesus himself have to say about the church and his kingdom? These are just a sampling of the issues here. And, and how does Israel fit into all this? These are just a, a touch to it. but it's, So it, it's very difficult. Uh, at least it was for me. Um, because to be faithful, you've got to take into account what Scripture says as a whole. You've got to take into account what it says contextually within this time period. Well, looking at it here, this prophet of God, he says, it will come about. Um, that's the promise of God. It will come about, he says. So if you're going to believe the scripture and you believe and you're going to believe that God keeps his word, then you can say, Okay, this is, this is a definite, this, this is a, 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 a boundary marker. It will happen. So we can, we can stake, stake our lives on that. It will occur. Okay, so we can hold that. Something hold, solid to hold on to. It's a point of contact. It will occur. And it, and it concerns um, the creation of God. It concerns the, the people of God, the kingdom of God, the Christ of God, the will of God. It will occur. So it's something we can hold on to. Just, just follow with me the wills or the shalls here within this, these five verses. It will come about. It will be established. will be raised. Peoples will stream. Many nations will come. Uh, for from Zion will go forth. He will judge. They will hammer. Nation will not lift up. Never again will they train. Each of them will sit. As for us, we will walk 12 times in five verses. But that's not it. No, through the rest of the chapter, it continues for a total of 22 times in chapter 4. It increases in chapter 5 to 23 times in chapter 5. And there's more before it and more after it. Don't you think maybe God is emphasizing something here? It will happen we can stake our eternity on the veracity of God's word. He is emphasizing this again and again and again to a people who are so anxious. Their nation is about to be invaded. Okay, we can uh, we can associate with that right now, can't we? Maybe not personally but vicariously. We see it. There is a nation that has been invaded. is a very emotional time for these people. And God says, just wait. This is going to happen. This is not the end. This is not the end. Well, we could probably spend all day meditating on this fact alone, that it will happen. But just three things to consider and and let us learn from. One, God knows and is in control of history. He knows it. He speaks the end from the beginning. He's omniscient. Two, God's concerned about His people. He didn't leave them without information. He didn't leave them without instruction. He didn't leave them without hope. He promises and extends this hope to them. He cares for His people. Two, three, God's people, they ought to believe and to trust in their God. He puts it forth again and again and again. Trust me. Believe me. I promise you this is going to happen. He tells of his detailed involvement within history, even in war and in judgment. So concerning this knowledge, are you concerned or anxious about the future? Are you worried because you don't know what's going to occur? Isn't that that one of the the things that's most difficult sometimes about life? That you're facing something, you know it's coming up, but you don't know how it's going to turn out. And you fret and you worry and you're just, if I just knew. And whenever, whatever it is happens or occurs and you receive the knowledge, almost immediately a load falls off your shoulders. God's telling us. Trust Him. Believe him, he knows already. Well, concerning that, that God cares for his people, he knows our needs. He's considered our frame that it's but dust. He knows our needs. And, and are you in the midst of, of a personal, of a familial, of a, of a governmental, of a, of a ecclesiological fight, tension, conflict? Well, God promises and extends hope to you. There's hope. Conflict's not the end. Regarding faith and belief and trust, do we sometimes worry that, that God's kingdom won't come or his will won't be done because there's there's war or there's rumors of war? Look, has God ever not fulfilled a promise? No, he's faithful, he's truthful, he is the truth. What he says will occur. But now, none of these three things, though, they give us an excuse for, for not studying, or, or for searching, or for seeking, or praying for wisdom, or insight. No, he, he said, study, show yourself approved, seek, seek. You will find. I mean, Daniel, he searched and he fasted and he prayed and he looked into these things. Like, when will when will this occur? When will the end become? And God gave him revelation. He gave him insight and wisdom and understanding. And he gave him courage and he gave him peace. Well, in chapter 3, verses... Um, 6 and 7 God promised to this um, nation in apostasy really that they would have a spiritual famine here it shall be night for you and subsequent to that he also promised in verse 12 that there would be a religious and a governmental collapse Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Well, on the hills of and out of the ashes of verse 12 comes the kingdom of chapter 4, verse 1. And death must come before life. Judgment comes before mercy. And this section here These five verses, it's the the food for which the entire world craves. They crave for it. This is the government which will provide peace for a world at war. Micah here is declaring good news. He's declaring good news not just to Judah. No, to all nations, to all peoples here. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's declaring good news. And can you not feel the anticipation that that Micah himself must have felt when penning these words? He's got to be over the moon excited. There is this confident expectation, this confident excitement, this, this hope that's almost palpable in the air. You can almost see it and grab hold of it. He's just, yeah, it's right here. This is a testimony that's, that's going to that's gonna perfuse this, the emptiness of man. It's going to fill that hole, that void within the human heart that cries out for something. This crying out and an intense desire for the Word of God, even, even the incarnate Son of God. It's a desire for Him. Listen, God declared good news to Adam and Eve even though they disobeyed him. He declared and promised good news to Abraham, who was an idolater. Um, He, through Micah, spoke this good news to Judah, to this rebellious nation under judgment. And God, via these same texts, via these same men, is still proclaiming good news to you today. Still. What is that good news? Well... It's that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be. It will be. This is the restatement of the promise that was given to David when, um, when he says, I will raise up my descend- your descendant after you. He shall come forth from you and I will build his house. I will establish his kingdom. He's going to build a house for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's a restatement of that. So, so God, through Micah, he's again declaring this good news. He's again declaring his word to, to the people that's, that's reminiscing for the kingdom of David's son. They're looking back, and they're longing for those, those glory days. And he's just bringing that promise again and saying, hey... Yeah, I haven't forgotten. I'm going to keep my word. This promise is still valid. The Lord is pointing His people forward and not backward. He's saying, look, the greater fulfillment is in the future. It doesn't lie in the past. Look forward. For after Micah's generation had died out, after Solomon's temple had been destroyed... The same word came to the prophet Haggai. And let's let's turn to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 follows Zephaniah and before Zechariah. Haggai 2 verses 6 through 9. And again, this is after Micah's generation after the temple is already destroyed. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and also the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Catch this, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's interesting there that he is known by, God is known by the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies here. He says it again and again and again, and he promises the latter glory He promises peace. And this this same promise is also uh, spoken of, again, in in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8. Well, these, uh, in Micah's, in Haggai's, in Zechariah's days, for these, the promise was yet future. But for us, we're removed 2,700 years from there, past them well past that dividing line in history which separates the former from the latter. The question then is, has this happened? Practically all of Christendom recognizes that we're in the last days. So is this a fulfilled promise? Or one yet awaiting fulfillment? And my answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. This is one of those already but not yet. Okay? Um, much like the Davidic covenant that regarded both Solomon and Christ. You know, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll build it up in three days. Okay? Um, he said, the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. But Daniel said, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. Okay, we can identify with that. But check this out. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That part hasn't happened yet. What's being presented here in Micah 4 is a glimpse into the the time in which this kingdom of heaven will crush or has preeminence over all of the other's nations. Okay? This is a time when my king... Upon Zion, whom I have installed, right? He's received these nations as an inheritance, and He's ruling them with a rod of iron. This is a time when all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. Psalm 22. So so we've got two Psalms now, Psalm 2 and Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Pointing to this. And there's there's more. This is the time when those in heaven declare. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom was established at Christ's first advent. It was established. But it's not fully consummated yet. The coronation ceremony is... It occurred at His ascension. But the nations do not yet recognize or honor His lordship and His authority and His power to reign. Christ Jesus rules, but not all enemies are yet under His feet. So what is this chief mountain? What is this kingdom? Well, contextually I say that it must somehow be related to worship, for it was the mountain of of the temple. There's there's a religious collapse. That's spoken of. This This period of night. For you. But there also seems to be a connection to the nation. Because there's specific locations given. Zion. Jerusalem. And not to mention that the entirety of the preceding chapter. Really the entirety of the preceding book. But. But they have to do with the state of the nation. What's going on in the country. And as it reads to me. God is declaring. A future religious and governmental restoration. In the face of Judah's impending religious and governmental collapse. He's in effect saying. Your country will fall. Your temple will be destroyed. But. I will raise up your nation, and I will rebuild your temple. Now, ironically, it was these two things, the nation and the temple, which the elders and the chief priests, they were trying to hold together. They were trying to salvage when they crucified Christ. But it was this rejection of Jesus that caused them to lose both. You see, they were trying to hold on to it and do it their way. Well, this promised restoration here, it's going to go leaps and bounds beyond anything that has ever been witnessed in history. It's a multifaceted restoration. It's that which involves the, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual This is the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. We read in the book of Acts. God's house, God's mountain, will be elevated to its proper position at the head. His rule shall be universally recognized by Jews and by Gentiles because all the peoples will stream to it. Did you catch that? All the peoples will stream to it. There is a, a worldwide desire to hear the words of God and to be instructed in the ways of the Lord. There's a global hunger for righteousness, a global hunger for righteous living, for holy living, for obedient living. And there's an earthwide flow of travel to Jerusalem because even as Jesus said, Repentance for forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And we see that also isn't already, but not yet. Well, the end of 1B here, the peoples will stream to it. Remember, Jerusalem is situated on elevated terrain. When does anything stream upward? Upward. Hmm? Well this only occurs when there's an attracting force that's stronger than gravity. And Chris gave a, a, an illustration of this on Wednesday night whom he borrowed from MacArthur with and if you, if you were here you'll recall it with the magnet and and the and the bag of glass marbles or the bag of magnetic particles of of metallic shavings. And you put that magnet in the bag of shavings and you can just lift it up. Well all of those shavings, they're, in a sense, defying gravity because the internal force is stronger than the external force. It pulls it out. Well, here in this passage, the attraction to, to the king who's above all kings is this invisible force that that compels men from every nation, tribe, and tongue to, to overcome any obstacle and and. Flow stream to him to to Jerusalem to the place where where the headwaters are flowing to this stream of of life, and and only when these two are connected, the the weaker to the stronger, the the um the particle to the to the magnet, only when they're connected shall there going to be any resolution. other. So be any peace, be any rest. There's a pulling. But notice that this isn't a domineering. This isn't what we would think of as, as despotic or, or a, um, a tyrannical or a dictatorial power. That's not what's described here. Though this force is truly irresistible, shall we say, it's also willingly and joyfully accepted because this force, it compels by creating volunteers. It creates volunteers. Here. Um, even as, as David declared. Your people will volunteer freely. In the day of your power. And so these peoples. They're streaming to it. They're saying let's go. Let's go. They want to do it. They want to go there. And to be there. And to hear it. Well. The Jews, though, of Samuel's day, they rejected God as their king. The Jews of Micah's day, they stubbornly continued in idolatry until eventually the idols defeated them. The Jews of the first century, they hatefully crucified their Messiah until, in a sense, their nation was crucified. Paul, he said that God gave them a spirit of stupor. Hmm. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not. Down to this very day. But, brothers and sisters, if their rejection, the Jews' rejection, if their rejection of Christ is the reconciliation of the world that you and I get to hear the gospel and to and to have a Messiah to call ours, then what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? Hmm. I believe that what's being spoken of here in Micah chapter 4, it coincides with the conversion of the Jews. And I believe that's what's spoken of here is a portion of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham when he says, I will make you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is what God spoke to Ezekiel the prophet when he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel continued in the following chapter, chapter 37. And he says, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. My servant David will be king over them. Listen to what he says next. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. says Ezekiel 37. Twenty-two through twenty-six. Well, that's what Micah speaks of here, and there's another contemporary of Micah who speaks of this. That is Hosea. You remember? You remember Hosea, that uh, that prophet whom God told to marry a harlot. This prophet who had an adulterous wife and he raised kids that were not his own. Yeah. Well, through this man, Hosea, and his unorthodox yet God-ordained ministry, we have these words, Hosea chapter 2. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And catch this, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. Well, while verses three and four here in Micah, they tr- they truly are just beautiful, artistic expressions. They are that, and they are contrasted with the with a very dark and ominous and sorrowful um, language and picture painted for us in three twelve. They aren't simply poetic phrases. They aren't simply word pictures. No, these verses are very practical and literal. Just like 312 literally occurred, Jerusalem being plowed, so also shall these weapons of warfare, I think, be literally turned and repurposed into agricultural tools. Picture this. Just, just can't you imagine this here? Caleb, he takes his AR or his Kalashnikov and he gives it to Jesse. And Jesse takes this thing to his forge and he hammers and he beats the fool out of this thing. And then he takes what's what's left over from that and he gives it to Neil. And he's got a workable piece of, of steel now and he, and he takes that and he uh, either fabricates something of itself, or he attaches it to a plow that John pulls behind his tractor. Okay? So, so here's an example of how something like this could turn out. There is, there is taken a weapon of war, something that's intended for, uh, for lethal or deadly purposes, and he, and he repurposes it into something that you can use to plow up this ground, produce food... Which will provide life instead of taking life now we are giving life instead of the removal of breath you 're giving something that someone can ingest that it helps to revive them to ensure they continue to have breath, or maybe you have this this neighbor who has a, uh, a collection of, of, of ancient swords and armor from the medieval period or or civil war memorabilia or Or World War II weaponry. And they take all this and they donate it. And what is made out of it? Well, you make John Deere tractors. Or you make roofing metal to put on your wife's garden shed. Okay? It's not out of the realm of possibility. In fact, I say it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, even as war began in a garden, so shall a garden occur in the midst of a war zone here. Once more shall the earth be characterized by men and women who tend the garden and keep it. They tend the garden and keep it. Listen, God's original plan is still His plan. There's no plan B. No. Jesus Christ is that plan. He is. And where war once ruled, peace now reigns. Where chaos thrived, now order is extended where hatred and animosity occurred. Now there's love and there's joy. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is a just judge. From Him shall go forth the law. He has all authority. His legitimate reign will be accepted over the entirety of the cosmos. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. The piece described for us here in Micah 4 informs us just how powerful this Jesus is. Well, the chief of the mountains, his power as king sets him above all earthly governments. And, and, you know, we talked about these wills. It will come about. This will happen. This will. He will judge. He, they will hammer. His desires transcend all human desires. His discernment as he who gives the law, as he who interprets the law, as he who enforces the law, his judgment and discernment as a judge, it places his rulings higher than any national or international court. Let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord that he may teach us about his ways. His knowledge as teacher, it elevates his word above all ignorance, above all apathy, above all wisdom of men. Let us hear of him. Let let him teach us. His authority, it extends beyond the political aspirations of any leader. He is over them all. All are subservient to him. His triumph over His enemies, and even death and hell, it removes any cause for fear. No one is going to make them afraid. No one. Why? Because Jesus Christ reigns. The Word and the authority of Christ has such power, it demands such adherence, that the primary means of settling disputes among nations... War ceases to exist. It's not a possibility. It's removed. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, I guarantee you that right now, someone, multiple someones in Ukraine or Russia or neighboring countries, right now, they are longing for this very thing. There is a very deep, a very emotional, a very visceral, gut-wrenching longing for war to cease. It's still early on. And there's still. Yah, yah, hurrah, hurrah. And go as us. But I guarantee you. The first casualty in your family. And your attitude changes like that. Like that. You see your friend die. You see a child die. A spouse die. A brother die. A family member. Wounded. And you ready for it to be over. Because it's a different reality for you now. Someone is longing for this right now. Multiple someones. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But we don't yet see it as a reality. National governments still vie for power, men still desire sin. Courts still issue ungodly decisions. Schools still propagate misinformation. Nations still rise up against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Wars continue because injustice continues. Men cannot and will not have universal peace until there is universal justice. And the only man capable of universal And impartial and true justice is the son of man. So the text says, he will judge. And even as Abraham declared, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is yes, of course. Of course he will. Of course. So perhaps you like the apostles are asking, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the nation to Israel? Is it now? Are you, are you anticipating this day? Are you joyfully anticipating? Doesn't your heart just burn for the day when, when war's no more? When you're sitting under your fig tree and you're enjoying its fruit in its shade with no fear, no cause of concern? When you're sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, listening to him, to he who speaks with authority, who teaches with authority, are you asking, Lord, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging? How long? Well, to the martyrs, he said, Rest, rest a little while longer. Just a little while longer. Go back to sleep, son. It's okay. Just rest a little more. To the living, he says, it's not for you to know times and epochs, which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Our kings answer to you and to I, Is that we wait and that we joyfully anticipate the unveiling of the kingdom as what? As we go about our lives intentionally as His ambassadors, intentionally seeking His kingdom, purposely petitioning for His glory, and and consistently, regularly attempting to obey His will. As one man put it, a new government is formed, but not fully operational. We are his agents conducting his mission until the preliminaries are complete and the fullness comes. Another man said this way, The immense drama of human history, with its perennial conflict between good and evil, will not go on forever. In the end, God and righteousness will triumph. And that is so true. Upon the entrance of, of Israel into Canaan, Joshua, he demanded of the people something. He says, look, if it's disagreeable in your sight to, to serve the Lord, then, then choose for yourselves today whom you'll serve. Choose for yourself if you don't want to serve God, who are you going to serve? You can serve the gods which your father served beyond the river, or you can serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. Um, 2 Kings 17 tells us this, that the men of Babylon, after they had moved into to the northern tribes, um, the men of Babylon made Sukkoth-Benoth. These are their gods. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Ivites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So that's an option for you. Okay? Multiple options. Um, But Micah declares that even though this remnant is, is in the minority... Even though they're being defeated and killed. Even though there is, there's present opposition and future persecution. Yet what does he say? As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Job testified, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The question which you must answer, by which name are you called? Are, are you gonna, are you gonna follow after Nergal, or Tartak, or Anamalek or Dremelak? Is is that gonna be your last name? Servant of Sepervain. By name, by which name are you called? Of which kingdom are you a citizen? After whom will you walk?